Welcome to Disputes Digest. Today is July 1st, 2022. I'm Chris Campbell. It's our second episode of the week. We hope you like the first one to start your week. And hey, we might toy around with doing more than one episode a week. And in any case, we've got a lot to cover this week. So let's jump into it. We have several stories to bring you this time. First, we're going to talk about empirical research and commercial arbitration. Then we're going to discuss the new physical location for the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, in Switzerland. From there, another week, another arbitration decision from the U.S. Supreme Court. And this one's interesting, too. Finally, we'll end the week with another ADR nugget from Elizabeth, this time on pathological clauses. As usual, before we get into our stories for today, if you haven't already, take a moment and share the show with a friend or colleague. And if you've got any feedback for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. And hey, you already know the drill. Don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps others find the show. Let's start this week with some arbitration news. First, we're going to talk about empirical work and commercial arbitration. A special issue has just been released for the Journal of International Arbitration, one that has a very interesting topic, i.e. on empirical analysis in international commercial arbitration, and more specifically on national court judgments available on Walter Kluwer's database regarding enforcement and set-aside proceedings. Empirical research is becoming more and more important across the practice of law as a whole. More specifically, there is a growing body of scholarship in international investment arbitration. This is of keen interest because of its impact on public assets and especially against the backdrop of the often negative press that investment arbitration receives from certain news outlets. On the other hand, empirical research in international commercial arbitration can be scarce, mainly because of the confidential nature of arbitration. With this special issue, the hope is to disrupt and ideally change that trend, not for full transparency, but with the review for data collection certain metrics related to the parties, amounts, and industries involved. The goal of the empirical analysis in commercial arbitration is to become a new normal, just like it is in investment arbitration. Delving deeper into the report, there are approximately 553 court decisions on the enforcement side and 504 decisions that were set aside in total. There was some nearly 1,000 cases from around the world available on the Kluwer database, and they formed the basis of the data set for this empirical research. Another goal for the journal is to analyze how arbitration cases are being addressed around the world both on an enforcement of claims basis and how often claimants are successful in the claims that they bring before tribunals. On a final note, when arbitration professionals claim or suggest that England, France, or Singapore are arbitration-friendly jurisdictions or that public policy never wins, the question remains whether these claims are true or just anecdotal. With this empirical analysis, another hope is that we can get a step closer in answering these questions based on a deeper analysis of information rather than just an anecdote or individual perception. This holistic understanding is key for the longevity and importantly, the improvement of international arbitration. As such, empirical research will play a role in understanding how law is framed, operated, and practiced around the globe. We'll provide a link to the study in the show notes. Moving on to a development in the field of sports arbitration, the International Council of Arbitration for Sports, ICAS, 
that governs the Court of Arbitration for Sports, CAS, has moved its headquarters to Valle de Belion in Lausanne, Switzerland. It will be the first time since its creation in 1984 that the CAS will have its own purpose-built premises. Each year, CAS has around 900 procedures and organizes more than 250 hearings. The Palais itself is a major meeting center in Lausanne, which hosted the International Olympic Committee sessions in 1986. Finally, having a permanent home to the CAS will give new perspectives to strengthen CAS arbitration throughout the world. This new physical location and dedicated center for sport arbitration matters will permit a number of different hearings to take place at the same time. The center also provides for mediation rooms alongside three separate hearing rooms for arbitration matters. This facility also provides for an auditorium that can host up to 92 people, allowing CAS to organize seminars and workshops at its own premises. This is a significant move to expand the number of amenities and activities that the center can offer both in logistics, but also to educate the arbitration practitioners. This is a significant move to expand the number of amenities and activities at the center can offer, both in logistics, but also to educate the arbitration community as a whole, both on topical issues, as sports arbitration is considered a niche in the field, although CAS has been arbitrating sports disputes for over three decades. Then, let's step over to the European Union and talk about the press release from the Council of the European Union which suggests that some U.S. companies will have to report on its ESG requirements and obligations. Even if the SEC takes no action on climate or other ESG disclosure proposals. Why? Because the European Parliament has reached an agreement on a corporate sustainability reporting directive that would require more detailed reporting on sustainability issues such as environmental rights, social rights, human rights, and governance factors. That's what ESG stands for. If it goes into effect, the requirement would apply to all large companies and all companies listed on regulated markets as well as those who listed on small to medium-sized companies. Importantly, for companies outside the EU, the requirement to provide a sustainability report applies to all companies generating a net turnover of greater than 150 million euro in the EU and which have at least one subsidiary or branch in the EU. These companies must provide a report on their ESG impacts, namely on environmental, social and governance impacts, as well as this defined directive. It is also worth noting here that the EU employs a, quote, double materiality standard for sustainability disclosure, which requires reporting not only on information to the extent necessary for an understanding of the undertaking's development, performance, and positions, but also on information necessary for an understanding of the impact on the undertaking's activities on certain areas. An obviously broad and far-reaching requirement. The European Financial Reporting Advocacy Group, EFRAG, will be responsible for establishing European standards related to ESG and the reporting processes will be phased in over time. The report must be certified by an accredited independent auditor or certifier who must ensure that the sustainability information complies with the certification standards that have been adopted by the European Union. Assurance is also required for non-EU companies, whether by a European auditor or by one in a third country. Bloomberg reports that countries in the EU will be permitted to accredit independent certification companies to provide assurance for sustainability reports, a move characterized by Bloomberg as, quote, an effort to dilute big audit firms' market power, end quote. 
Obviously, none of these standards is likely to be precisely in line with what the SEC has proposed or ultimately adopts on climate disclosure, but it is a major step in that direction that will hopefully lead to greater cross-border cooperation on these reporting standards. We'll provide further information as it becomes available on this topic. And we couldn't finish this week without talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, which among other rulings this week issued its opinion in Morgan v. Sundance, Inc., where the court unanimously held that a party opposing a motion to compel arbitration based on the defense of waiver need not demonstrate that it was prejudiced. The only relevant consideration is whether the actions of the party seeking arbitration demonstrated a knowing waiver of the right to arbitrate. Here's a little bit of background. Morgan, the plaintiff, filed suit in September 2018 against the Taco Bell franchisee alleging violations of the Fair Labor Standards Act on behalf of herself and a class of employees. In May 2019, Sundance filed a motion to compel an arbitration and to dismiss plaintiff's complaint, which the district court denied. After being served with the complaint, Sundance had requested and received an extension of time to file its answer based on needing an additional time to investigate. Then, in November 2018, Sundance moved to dismiss in the interest of comedy and judicial comedy, based on a similar lawsuit pending in Michigan. The court denied the motion to dismiss some months later, and the parties participated in a class-wide, private mediation shortly thereafter and conducted informal discovery. And Sundance discussed with Morgan a litigation plan and other logistical issues for a scheduling conference and how to proceed. At no point during these extensive discussions did Sundance mention the existence or possibility of an arbitration agreement before filing its motion to compel arbitration. Following the ruling of the district court, the parties then found themselves before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, who applied, who applied a three-part test which held that, one, parties must know of an existing right to arbitration, two, that inconsistently act on behalf of that right, and three, one party must be prejudiced by those inconsistent actions. But in a somewhat surprising move, the Eighth Circuit actually reversed the district court and applied the Llewellyn rule to find that Sundance did not waive its right to arbitrate and that Sundance had not participated substantively in litigation machinery, noting that most of the motion practice related to a dismissal based on the Michigan case. This all set up for a final showdown for the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled for Morgan, which seemed to fundamentally disagree with Sundance, finding that it had waived its right and that it had prejudiced Morgan in its participation in multiple motions, mediation, and informal discovery. This decision adds a measure of predictability in determining whether a party has waived its right to compel arbitration. However, this decision will likely make it easier for plaintiffs to stay in federal court rather than arbitration. Therefore, it's important for parties who may want to proceed arbitration to determine that as early as possible and as practical and to act accordingly if they intend to file a motion to compel arbitration. All right, finally for this week, we bring you another ADR nugget from Elizabeth Arubales. This time, we're talking about a well-known topic in arbitration, pathological arbitration clauses. A well-known term, but I must admit, the first time I heard it, I thought of something different. I don't know, maybe something like a arbitration clause that had somehow become an infectious disease. Anyway, it's true that to some extent, these clauses show up in more agreements than you might think. Pathological clauses, a term first coined by Frederick Eisman, is widely used to describe arbitration clauses with apparent defects with the likelihood to disrupt the smooth progress of an arbitration. 
Such clauses may be a source of strife for the whole duration of the dispute and may prevent the matter from proceeding to arbitration altogether. From judicial battles to challenges at the enforcement stage, they can be a whole headache. Some examples can be inconsistent or unclear references to the matter of dispute mechanism or procedure, naming a particular arbitrator to participate in the proceedings, incorrectly listing the name of a given institution, and more. However, it has been established that not all defects in these clauses render the arbitration clause devoid of any effect. Some of these imperfections may be resolved through interpretation. Many courts have addressed these types of clauses. One notable example comes from the Singaporean High Court case of HKL versus Risk International Holdings, which held that despite the fact that the clause specified a non-existent institution as an administering institution, it would be open to the parties to approach any arbitral institution in Singapore which would be able to administer the arbitration applying the ICC rules. And in Nigeria, the case of Minwanye versus Omokuntin, and in a Nigerian case, in 2019, the Supreme Court in Nigeria kept with the well-established trend by upholding a pathological arbitration clause, albeit with some difficulty. At the end of the day, the best practice is to use model clauses, or at least to make sure your clause is consistent and refer to things, well, that actually exist. In any case, Elizabeth, thanks for your ADR nugget, and we're really enjoying having these segments as part of the show. That's it for Disputes Digest this week. I hope you've enjoyed getting two episodes in your feed. We'll be back with one episode next week. Hey, but let me know what you think in the comments or directly. Is getting two episodes too much? Is it enough? Somewhere in between? I want to hear from you in the comments. Reporters this week were Shandrika Sharma and Vaibhav Popkar. If you have feedback or comments for the show, drop us a line at talesofthetribunal at gmail.com. Until next week, this has been Disputes Digest. Bye. Tales of the Tribunal. None of the views shared today or in any episode of Disputes Digest is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any organization or party for their inclusion on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees or organizations included appear on an arm's length basis and their appearance should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.